Uh, Our text this morning will be Philippians chapter 4. We are continuing in our study here in Paul's little letter to the church in Philippi. And Paul's going to touch here in this text on this theme of contentment, uh, a really needed uh, challenge and teaching for our day. It's actually the text that Pete read for us this morning was also a reflection of Paul's uh, stance on contentment. At that time, he talks about a thorn in the flesh that God had allowed him to experience some type of physical trial, a significant physical trial. Paul says, three times I asked God to take it away. But Paul eventually came to realize that God's strength was made perfect in his weakness. God often tends to show up and demonstrate his power uh, when we are at our weakest point. So uh, this theme, again, going to be developed here in Philippians chapter 4. As we think about contentment, I, I, I'm often, um, I have often struggled with the, 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 the tension between saving and hoarding in the Bible. There's like this fine line, like saving's a good thing, right? Hoarding is a bad thing. Um, consider the contrast in Scripture between the ant and the rich man. So here's Proverbs 6, the ant. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. So this little ant, no one's telling it what to do. There's no queen ant that's giving out orders, right? The ants just work and gather their food in the summer. And they're wise, we're, the ants are commended here in Proverbs chapter 6. Now think about that in light of this parable that Jesus told about the rich man in Luke chapter 12. He told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who, uh, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So do you feel the tension there? As we think about this theme of contentment, the ant stores away food during the summer months and is wise. The rich man builds bigger barns to store away his food during the summer months and he's a fool. Which is it? Where is that line between saving and hoarding? What does it mean to, to be content, to, to say it's, it's enough? What God has given me is enough. This is an elusive thing to get a real handle on contentment. So Paul's word here is a timeless word uh, for us in our day. Well, as we come into this part of Paul's letter in chapter 4, we are reminded of the circumstances. There's kind of a backstory behind the letter to the Philippians. Paul was writing from prison in Rome. He was a Roman citizen, 
So his conditions were not as harsh as they could have been, but his prison experience would certainly have been different from an American prison experience. There would have been no cable television, no books from the prison library, no outside exercise time. There would not have even been a cafeteria. Paul was responsible for maintaining his own meals and clothes. If he wanted anything above gruel, he was going to have to pay for it himself or someone else was going to have to be a benefactor. So this is where the church in Philippi came in. They understood Paul's plight. They had compassion on Paul. They loved Paul. Uh, They were indebted to Paul because Paul had brought them the the life-giving news of the gospel. And so they took it upon themselves to send a financial gift from Philippi to Rome, and they sent a messenger by the name of Epaphroditus to deliver the gift. Epaphroditus would have traveled nearly 4,000 miles from Philippi to Rome. Now last year, we did our study of Route 66, moving our way through all 66 books of the Bible, and we used U.S. Route 66 as a conversation point, uh, going from Chicago to the California coast, and that is about 3,000 miles. That's a big trip, Uh, especially when you consider that Epaphras was making Uh, an even longer trip without train or automobile or airplane, okay? So this is a a really significant expression of love when the Philippians not only gave the money gift, but then invested in Epaphras to get him to Rome. Uh, They they weren't just Venmoing the funds, right? So this was really big. And so part of what's happening here in this letter is that Paul is responding to the gift. He's responding to this incredible demonstration of love and devotion. He is writing a thank you note to the church. And we see that, especially here in chapter 4, in the the text we're going to be looking at here today. So let's look at the text, Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now, at length, You have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. So it is no surprise that Paul expresses his emotion in terms of joy, right? I rejoice in the Lord greatly. This is actually the only time that that little adverb greatly is used in the New Testament. So Paul actually adds a little bit of an extra punch, an exclamation point to it. He is really overflowing here in joy. Nearly every section we've looked at in this little letter has reflected the theme of joy. And once again, Paul returns to it again. Even though Paul is in prison, he is experiencing joy 
because of all that he has in Christ. So he rejoices in the Lord. He rejoices in his salvation. He's reflecting, regardless of what's going on around him, on the fact that he has been brought into a reconciled relationship with God. His sins have been forgiven. He has been extended peace. He has been, instead of being the enemy of God, he's been made God's friend. He's been seated at God's table, adopted into God's family. He has a certain hope, a confident future. He knows that Christ is returning. And so in this, Paul finds great joy in the midst of some pretty bleak circumstances. He's actually facing uh, execution. (laughs) And uh, yet Paul can issue a statement like this of his joy. Specifically, his joy flows out of the friendship and camaraderie that he has with these believers in Philippi. They spurred his joy. They were a catalyst for his joy here. They had a concern for him. They had renewed or revived their concern for him. This is, this is a word of, of solidarity uh, it means to agree with another person. We might speak of a kindred spirit, right? Someone who just is on my wavelength and they're, they're, they, they know me and, and they're, they're concerned about me and they're thinking about my needs, not just their own. And, and Paul's using this ty- type of terminology to speak of these believers in Philippi. Now, this is all under the heading of rejoicing in the Lord. So, in some sense, Paul sees the church, he sees these believers, he sees Christian community as an extension of the work of Christ. In other words, we have not just been saved from our sins, but we have been um, included among the people of God. We've been given family to encourage us, to support us, to help us along the way. The church is one of God's great blessings to us. Even though we don't always recognize it for what it is. Even though we get pretty frustrated with the people in the church, right? In the community of faith. It's not always easy to get along, to work together. We're very different people. But it is a gift, and Paul recognizes it as such here. It's, it's part of what stirs him to this great expression of joy was the gift that they had sent to him, the expression of their love. Uh, he says here that it had been some time, right? He says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length or at last or after a long time you have revived or renewed your concern for me. Uh, the word here for renewal is, is, uh, is an agricultural word to, to, to bloom again, right? Uh, or to, uh, to bud again. So the trees are putting out their leaves again here in the spring, right? After a season of dormancy. And uh, Paul is saying, you know, it's been, a, it's been a long time since I've heard from you. And you could almost take it as a bit of a, of a criticism almost. Like, wow, it's been, been a while. <laughs> Glad to hear from you. <laughs> Uh, but Paul understood that his words could be a bit misconstrued. He goes on to clarify. He says, you've always had a heart for me. You've always been concerned for me, but you haven't necessarily had opportunity. 
And we don't know what Paul means by this, but something had prevented these believers from sending along this gift earlier. Maybe it was just distance. That would be understandable, right? I mean, how do you get someone from Philippi to Rome in the ancient world? This is no small thing. But then there might have been financial shortages. We know that the churches in Macedonia were marked by poverty at this time. And Philippi was part of that region. So they maybe just didn't have the funds to send. But Paul essentially says, now finally you were, you were able to do what you had wanted to do all along. <laughs> to send along this gift. Thank you. Paul was certainly greatly encouraged by the gift. He comes back to it again in verse 14. He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Again, notice how Paul characterizes the financial gift. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. It wasn't just about the money. It was an expression of solidarity. They they stood with him. They entered into his suffering, into his prison cell. They locked arms with him. Paul was not alone. You think about the significance. Some of you have maybe been on the receiving end of a, of a very generous gift. And you know the emotion that comes along with that. And sometimes you know I've been on the receiving end of gifts that I know were sacrificial to give. I'm trying to talk them out of giving the gift, right? Because I know they have very real needs. And, and there's something that happens in a relationship with that. And maybe you've been on the giving side of that, to see the joy and to uh, just express your concern for someone who you know is going through a difficult time. It's more than just the money, and Paul's kind of teasing this out here, talking about uh, how significant the gift was. So there's this joy that's kind of flowing out of, obviously, what Paul has in Christ and flowing out of this sense of Christian communities. That's kind of the, 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 the bookends here of this particular text. But in between verse 10 and verse 14, Paul has this really important caveat where he talks about contentment. And this is what I really want to focus on here this morning. Uh, Paul says here in verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, Uh, essentially Paul says, not that I needed the gift. Now that doesn't sound very grateful, does it? Thanks for sending the gift. I really didn't need it. But it was nice of you to travel 4,000 miles. Uh, Paul's not, again, making a slight here. He's just wanting to make a statement about contentment. Even if the gift didn't come, Paul would be content. He wasn't going to be shaken by this issue one way or the other. And so he's taking an opportunity to express his contentment. Paul is calling us here. He's modeling contentment, but he's also calling these believers and he's calling us to contentment. The type of contentment that we sing about when we sing it is well with my soul. right? Horatio Spafford, having lost his wife and his children at sea, in the midst of unthinkable grief, penned the words to that great hymn. It is well with my soul. Paul is expressing this kind of sentiment. 
It's like the ballast in the boat, right? The weight in the boat that helps the boat weather the waves. Paul wants these believers to be solid, to be confident in God and not driven about by their circumstances, whether good or bad. So this is an important caveat uh, that, uh, again, is very timely for us in our day. So I want to note three things about contentment from this text. Number one, contentment is possible, regardless of your circumstances. Contentment is possible, regardless of your circumstances. Paul issues a great declaration about contentment, and then he actually repeats it again for emphasis here. And notice the exhaustive language that Paul uses. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In, and then he goes on. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret right, of contentment. So Paul has in mind something that transcends circumstances. His circumstances were not that great, and if you're sitting here thinking, you don't know what I'm going through, Pastor. You don't know the, the, the baggage that I bring, the particular situation, life situation that I find myself in. Uh, I don't. But Paul's saying that this is something that is available to us regardless of our circumstance. So it's possible to experience contentment Contentment was a highly valued virtue in the first century Roman world. Uh, To be content uh, was to be contained, to sort of have uh, all the resources within yourself. One commentator said it this way, the stoic ideal was of a kind of self-contained superman who could rise above it all in independent self-sufficiency and serenity. This is our classic idea of the Stoics, right? Nothing ever bothers them. They are like men of steel, right? Now, this isn't exactly the biblical idea of contentment, and Paul's going to communicate something different, but these believers would certainly have had a framework for this whole notion of contentment. The basic concept was familiar to Paul's readers, and uh, Paul teases out the theme with three dramatic contrasts. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Uh, This bringing low has to do with humiliation and shame and uh, betrayal and misunderstanding and misrepresentation And by the way, in a shame-based culture, honor is very important, right? And Paul's saying, I know what it is to be treated as garbage. And I also know what it is to be honored and affirmed and exalted. He says also here, I I am able to face plenty and hunger This is a little more straightforward. I know what it is to have a full belly, and I know what it is to go without. And then a third contrast. I am able to face abundance and need. I know what it is to have a lot, and I know what it is to have a little. So Paul is describing the gamut of the human experience, the gamut of our circumstances, and he is saying 
that he has learned to be content in all of those circumstances, all right? So it, it is possible. You might feel like it's not because of what's going on in your heart and your soul, even this morning, but it is possible to experience contentment. We're certainly familiar with Paul's lows, aren't we? He writes about them in several passages, some of the more colorful sections of Scripture. He writes this, To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless, we work hard with our own hands, when we are cursed we bless, when we are persecuted we endure it, when we are slandered we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. Right up to this moment. So in the eyes of the culture, Paul was less than nothing. Right? This is tying into that whole honor-shame piece here. 2 Corinthians, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. All manner of suffering Paul had experienced, but he did not despair. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, etc., etc., etc. I mean, Paul endured his share of hardship, right? And he's saying here in this text, I have learned to be content even in times like this. Paul's high points are a little more elusive. He doesn't talk about them quite as overtly. We have to use our sanctified imagination and the context of Scripture to come up with a list. Certainly there was the prayer meeting at the church in Antioch when God, in no uncertain terms, set aside Paul and Barnabas for a great earth-changing missionary endeavor. Right? There was their return to Antioch when they reported that God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. There was their miraculous release from the jail in Philippi, the conversion of the jailer, and a celebration gathering at the home of Lydia where those believers rejoiced at God's goodness. There were the times that he spent with Aquila and Priscilla making tents. And there was that gathering on the beach with the Ephesian elders as they embraced Paul and expressed their appreciation for bringing them the gospel. A lot of sweet times, right? Lows, 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 and some high, high highs. And Paul says, I've learned to be content in all of these circumstances. I couldn't help but notice that it is important to learn contentment in good times as well as in bad times. We live in a relatively affluent culture. We don't generally face hunger or privation. But we still experience anxiety and discontent, do we not? 
Any other witnesses in the room? Matter of fact, John Calvin said it's actually harder to remain content when experiencing prosperity. He suggested that wealth breeds discontent. Here's his argument. He who knows how to use present abundance soberly and temperately with thanksgiving, prepared to part with everything whenever it may please the Lord, giving also a share to his brother according to his ability, and is also not puffed up, (laughs) that man has learned to excel and to abound. This is an excellent and rare virtue and much greater than the endurance of poverty. The person who's been blessed tremendously The ability to hold it loosely, to be able to steward it generously without getting proud, Uh, this is the real test, right? There are four bodies of water in Israel. They are locally known as the Red The dead, the bread, and the med. So you have the Red Sea way off the south of this map, okay, down by Egypt. And then you have the Dead Sea, the the low body of water in the bottom of this graphic. And then you have the med, the Mediterranean there off to the left. And then you have the Sea of Galilee there, the the bread, the Bread Sea, uh, where Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish, okay? It's interesting that only one of those four bodies of water is fresh water. There is one lake in a country the size of New Jersey. So the Sea of Galilee is pretty important, right, as the source of water. And I would suggest to you that even more so than the Sea of Galilee is Mount Hermon. And you can get just a little sense of topography and you can see the mountainous area. This is the high point in the land of Israel. And Mount Hermon is snow-covered most all the time. This is where the water comes from that feeds the Jordan River, that feeds the Sea of Galilee, that feeds the rest of the Jordan River, that waters the land, okay? My point is, you can realize why Mount Hermon and the Golan Heights are so important in that part of the world. (laughs) There is no other source of water, (laughs) And so uh, Israel is self-contained. They have water that provides nourishment to the land. And in a similar way, we are called upon to be content. Like Psalm 1, a tree planted by the rivers of water, right, that always has a source of nourishment and nutrients and That should be us, okay? We ought to be people who are content. And Paul's saying here it's it's possible. We can tie into that life-giving source. Like Jesus described the branches uh, being connected to the, the vine, right? Jesus, the vine, we're the branches. We gain the sap from the vine. That's what gives life to us, to the branches. So this idea of contentment is is. Uh, is, is possible, and, it, and it's not contingent on circumstances. Second thing we learn in this text is that contentment is a learned discipline. 
Contentment is a learned discipline. Paul actually says it twice here in the text. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And he goes on to say it again. I have learned the secret of contentment. Paul did not have some unique wiring so that he was immune from discouragement or anxiety. He didn't take any anti-anxiety medication so that he would not be bothered by his imprisonment or his imminent execution. It's not to say that anything wrong with taking those medications. I'm just saying that Paul didn't have any shortcuts. There was no, there was no extra advantage that Paul had. He had to learn contentment. The point is it doesn't come automatically. Even for the Christian. There's a certain mental discipline that is involved. So if you feel that you are predisposed towards anxiety and discontent, join the club. We all are, right? But Paul did his homework. He mastered his lessons. He passed his tests. He learned contentment. As a junior in high school, I wanted to increase my vertical jump for very vain reasons. I wanted to be able to dunk a basketball. And so I looked online and, you know, there's all these little programs for, you know, certain exercises that you do to work various muscle groups. And there's these, uh, you know, toe dips and there's squats and there's leg lunges and there's jumping rope. And the list was really long. And so for like two summers, I really kind of devoted myself to that. And and I, I, for about six months, I was able to dunk a basketball. It was a very short window, but I, I, I reached that goal. I don't have, I, I don't, I, unfortunately, I have no visual proof of this, so some have already questioned uh, my, my story, but the, the point is that as with most things in life, right, they are going to require some measure of, of effort. I was thinking about this with youth sports. Kids don't like practice as much as they like the games, right? Want to get to the competition. But if you read about this, uh, there's a great book out there by David King called Overplayed, all about youth sports, and uh, I would highly commend it to you uh, because youth sports can be a black hole uh, of our attention and our money and our expectations and our hopes. So it's a really good resource, Overplayed. But one of the things they talk about in there is that actually what kids need is not so much the competition's They don't need to travel all over creation. They need training. They need rote activities to learn skills, right? So 25-year-olds on the soccer field moving around like this in a cluster, they're having a good time, but they're not necessarily learning about soccer. (laughs) There are specific drills they could do to... To, to work on specific skills at that age, right? The point is, if you want to learn anything, it's going to take diligence, intentionality, and effort. And the same is true for contentment. It is a learned discipline. 
Again, don't feel defeated because you have a restless disposition. We all do. But you and I can learn to be content. We can cultivate contentment. We can grow stronger in this area. And I think part of it might tie into even some of the things that, that I, uh, as I work to develop and discipline my mind and my thinking, uh, it, it's going to maybe mean some hard choices, right? That might have something to do with social media or the absence of social media. Social media can tend to breed insecurity, can it? We look at all these idyllic situations out there and, and come away feeling rather defeated about what we did not accomplish on that particular day. Watching the news all day is probably not going to be a really healthy activity for most of us. It in itself would breed anxiety. I used to just have to deal with the problems in my community. Now I'm aware of all the problems everywhere in the world 24-7. I can't handle it, <laughs> right? So I, we think about some of those, those intake types of things. The talking heads in the culture present a certain worldly notion of success. And if you don't meet that standard, you might be inclined to feel like a failure. Airbrushed images create physical standards that aren't even real and can certainly feed our anxieties. So we're going to have to start taking control of our thoughts. And uh, that's certainly part of the discipline here that Paul outlines when he talks about learning to be content. Well, finally, number three, the key to contentment is an understanding of the inexhaustible riches and power that are made available to us in Christ. The key to contentment is a robust understanding of the inexhaustible riches and power that are made available to us in Christ. So notice what Paul does here in verse 12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So a word secret is used in the ancient world to describe you know, an initiation into a secret or mystical religious group. So it's like these, this knowledge that not everybody has, and it's sort of this insider information. And so Paul's using that kind of language to describe this secret that most people don't know about. They live in this restlessness, but there's a secret, and Paul had discovered it. And he goes on to reveal it in verse 13. Here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is a commonly quoted verse. Some of you have it on some artwork in your home. Unfortunately, it's very often misquoted. So you can keep the cross-stitch display, but at least understand what the text means. Paul is not saying that you can do anything you set your mind to. You can fly if you trust enough. You can get that new Corvette. You can play in the NFL even though you're only 5'9 and a buck 25. You can do it if you put your mind to it, right? This is not what Paul is saying. Paul has just described the range of circumstances, right? The highs and the lows that he had experienced. And then he says, I've learned that I can do all these things. All the things that God has put before me. All the circumstances that he has given me. 
through him who gives me strength. Again, through him. This is a reference to Jesus, whom Paul has already referred to as the Lord in verse 10. And I think that designation is significant. Paul has in mind here the risen, ascended Lord. Jesus is in a position of authority with every resource at his disposal, possessing every power in the universe. If you want to do a great little homework assignment, look at all the references to the post-resurrection, post-ascension appearances of Jesus. Stephen, he's being martyred. They're throwing stones at him and he looks up and he sees the heavens part and he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father and he begins to feel pity for the ones that are murdering him. Paul on the Damascus road, blinded by a light and confronted by Jesus himself. Revelation 1 The ascended Jesus with eyes of flaming fire, a sword protruding out of his mouth, feet of burnished bronze, dressed in brilliant white, riding a majestic stallion. This is what Paul has in mind. Not the Lamb Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the reigning Jesus. I have a new motorcycle that has passed down to me from my dad. It's a 2006 BMW. It was made for the Autobahn, which is unfortunate because I don't live in Germany. But it's really fast. It's a big upgrade over my 1983 Suzuki that I had before. But that motorcycle is worthless without fuel. Don't ask me how I know that, but it is worthless. It is a lawn ornament without fuel. And it actually takes the really high-octane stuff. It's a good thing it gets 50 miles to the gallon. We, too, are impotent without Jesus' strength. He has made us alive, and he is the one who strengthens us and allows us to do, in terms of our mission, what would otherwise be impossible. I find it interesting in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus extends the Great Commission again, but he says, don't don't go out yet. Don't, don't attempt anything until the Spirit of God is poured out, right? Until Pentecost. Because you, you can't do this mission that I've got for you. <laughs> it's Jesus that is the one that makes our conversations fruitful, that helps me have courage to speak, who does the interior work to bring people under conviction of their sin when they hear the gospel. This is all Christ's work But it was this mindset that allowed Paul to be content. Even when he was facing terrible privation and hunger and shame, he knew that Christ's power was operative. Christ was able to exert his power in Paul's weakness, which is how God often chooses to show up. Abraham and Sarah, right, in their childless situation. Joseph's imprisonment in Egypt. Samson's humiliation at the hands of the Philistines and the plucking out of his eyes. 
all of those terrible, desperate situations were setups for God's glory to be manifested. And Paul realized it was not about his own strength, but about Christ's strength in him. Now, Paul is describing contentment that is only available to the believer, to the one who has been joined to Christ by faith. Do you know this Savior who can bring such contentment to the restless soul? I commend him to you today. Augustine had to learn the hard way that nothing else would satisfy him. He was one of the early church fathers. He searched for satisfaction through educational accomplishments and sexual exploits. But he ultimately came to conclude our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. He couldn't find contentment in anything else and you won't either. Turn to Christ to find the contentment that only he can bring. And even as believers, we have a constant temptation to find contentment in other things. Paul wrote to Timothy about the futility of finding contentment in money. 1 Timothy chapter 6. You might be familiar with Alex uh, Hanold's legendary achievements. Uh, This young man was featured on a film called Free Solo. Uh, If you have a fear of heights, you might not want to watch it. He had a passion to climb El Capitan at Yosemite National Park, uh, a sheer face cliff 3,000 feet from base to summit. And he wanted to do it free solo without ropes or any safety harnesses. It is terrifying to watch. But he devoted his life to it. Uh, He gave himself to it day and night. It dominated his perspective. He could not rest. Spoiler alert, he did it. And you would think he would feel this great satisfaction. But then he starts talking about, I wonder what's next. Someone else is going to come and take that record from me or tie that record. It was never going to satisfy Alex. And the things you're trying to find significance in are never going to satisfy you either. Paul calls us here to find contentment in Christ. Christ. 